Let's, uh, let's turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We're continuing uh, in our series in the Gospel of Mark. And quickly kind of catch you up to speed as we pick up this passage just in the second chapter. But here's kind of what's going on in the Gospel of Mark. You know, in the other Gospels, especially in, in Luke uh, and Matthew also, there's sort of a lengthy process of discussing the birth of Jesus and the lineage of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, he gets into some theology about Jesus, that Jesus is the Word, the Logos, and was, you know, in, in the beginning was the Logos. But Mark gets straight to the story uh, and regarding the ministry of Jesus. He skips uh, his birth and so forth and goes directly uh, to his ministry, which begins uh, with the baptism of John the Baptist of Jesus. As Jesus is baptized, if you remember, we just read that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon him as a dove. And right as that happens, then uh, the Father gives him this divine benediction. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so as Jesus is baptized and fulfilling all righteousness, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are so beautifully uh, displayed. So we are Trinitarian and we believe that God is one God, yet exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then immediately after his baptism and this divine blessing, then the Son of God is called into a time of testing and temptation and trial where he fasts for 40 days but is in the wilderness and among wild animals and going through difficulty as he identifies with a broken and sinful humanity. After this time of trial and difficulty, he calls four of his disciples to himself to follow him. And then he enters into ministry, having told us in chapter 1, verse 15, that behold, repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is present with me as Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying. It's like, because I am here, the kingdom of God is here, and I'm going to give you tangible demonstrations of what the kingdom looks like. And so on day one of his ministry, he preaches God's word. And as he does, uh, evil presents itself in the form of a demon-possessed man. He confronts evil because where the kingdom is, there is no evil. There cannot be evil. And so he, the evil has to flee and be cast out. And then, the man, and then after teaching with authority and casting out evil, he goes to Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house and he heals her because she's sick, very sick. And then many other people come to them that are either uh, being harassed by evil or, or with sickness, and Jesus deals with it And because the kingdom of God is at hand. And where the king goes, these things can't exist. And then, uh, then we see that after that, he goes throughout Galilee. He leaves Capernaum, this fishing village where he begins his ministry that serves as sort of his central base or home base. And he goes throughout Galilee to preach and to share the good news and to heal in those areas also. But now, today in chapter 2, we see that he comes back to Capernaum, which again serves as sort of home base. And we pick up there in chapter 2 and read through verses 1 through 12 today. Let's read. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. My wife, Becky, has a friend from college, and she played volleyball with this friend named Laurel, and they are so close still to this day. Her husband's also a pastor in in Indianapolis and a church planter, and so we just have an enormous amount in common and a long history with them. And their friendship is such a gift to her. But several years ago, Becky had written a a lengthy email. Becky only writes lengthy emails. And uh, she's known for that. And and this one was like profoundly personal and, and asking questions, specific questions to Laurel and asking about her life. And the, the email went off, and yet there was no response. And so Becky wrote another very personal email, like weeks later, and saying, you know, again, specific questions. How are you? This is going on in my life. What's going on in your life? Again, no response. And then those weeks turned into a couple months. And when we would be alone and talking, like on a date or something, she would say, this is just weighing on me. I don't understand what's going on. Why wouldn't Laurel respond to, to my, my questions and what's going on? And she began to get more and more nervous and worried that something was wrong in their relationship. And maybe there was some way in which she had offended her friend and her friend was just not being honest with her. And it was weighing on her. I could literally see it on her countenance. And so... The relief that came to her when we found out the reason why this was going on, because her husband, also Scott, had failed uh, to tell Becky that, well, she had told Becky that uh, they had changed email addresses when, in fact, they had not. And so for months, Becky has been sending these emails to the wrong email address, and there was just such relief to find out that it wasn't an unforgiven situation. If we feel unforgiven by someone that we really love and that we really care for, if we have this sense of like there's something wrong in a relationship with somebody that we really care for, it is a weight on us, right? It it presses down. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you right now know that there are people out in the world or even right in this community, uh, not this church necessarily, but in this city that don't forgive you. They have things against you and they've not forgiven you and it weighs down on you. But... If that person that you sense hasn't forgiven you is God, then that weight is an unbelievable weight. It's kind of what we're after today. What if, what would it be like to live with the weight of not believing that your sins are forgiven? It's crushing. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been proclaiming this presence of the kingdom of God, and he's been demonstrating the realities of his kingdom everywhere he goes. And now he comes back to this city and we see two things in this passage I want to highlight. One is the quest that this man has for healing, this paralytic. He's on a quest, on a search, but then also the question that Jesus asked. So he is on a quest, but then Jesus questioned, the quest and the question. So the news that Jesus was back in town must have spread around like crazy. I mean, think about it, because Jesus had been in Capernaum. He called his disciples. He's in Capernaum. And the first thing he does is he preached this, this amazing sermon with authority, unlike the scribes. 
And then after that, he heals and casts out evil and so forth, and then spends a whole evening at Peter's mother-in-law's house uh, healing people. And so word around town was spreading like crazy, but then immediately that next day, if you remember, Jesus tells his disciples, we must leave, we must go to Galilee and preach the good news in other parts of Galilee. And so they leave. And I want you to think about the people that were still in town who had not been healed. If you're someone with illness, chronic pain, or you're a paralytic, and for whatever reason, you didn't make it to Peter's mother-in-law's house that first night where Jesus healed everyone, and then now you missed your opportunity, and imagine what it was like to be this man, this paralytic, who missed out. And we talk about the fear of missing out in our culture, right? This is a thing. (laughs) FOMO. Have you heard of FOMO? The fear of missing out? And in our culture right now, there's this, this fear of missing out. It's, it's very thin in, in comparison to what we're talking about with this man. But like, yeah, it's this idea of like we're missing out on a party. Like we're on the phone with somebody and then we get another phone and we pause that. that we get another call. We pause that call in order to take the other call, even if we don't know who's calling because the fear of miss, there might be something incredible going on. We're driving and texting at the same time because we can't wait. There's an impatience thing, but there's also this sense of, well, what, what is this person texting about? I might miss something. I might miss something important, maybe something really fun or really incredible. It can't wait 10 minutes. And by the way, uh, the great state of Arizona has passed a new piece of legislation that we can't drive and text or call anymore. You knew that, right? So you got to quit doing it. It's in, and it's in the Bible. Yeah, let's, yeah. <laughs> And your pastor would never do that. It's never happened. So that's totally a joke. It happens far too often. The fear of missing out. The fear of missing out. We're constantly in our culture have this veneer and this sense of fear of missing out. I experienced it even a little bit today in kind of a funny way. On Sunday mornings, I take a walk. I take a walk almost every morning with our dog, Molly. And as Molly and I were walking early this morning, like around 6 a.m. on the canal, I'm walking along, and I see this incredibly cute bulldog and his owner coming towards us down the canal. And I l- just saw this dog, and I'm so, I just love bulldogs. They're adorable. And I, I wanted to pet this dog, so I'm hoping it's friendly, and I'm hoping the owner will come towards me. And, and this dog's just coming right at us, and he said, he's friendly. And I said, my dog too. And so we have this greeting with the dogs, and I begin to pet the dog. What's his name? His name is Bentley. How old is Bentley? He's three. And I go, I hear great things about bulldogs. Tell me, is is it as good as I hear? And he looked at me with a, a, somber, a sober and somber tone. He goes, man, it has changed our lives. <laughs> like, almost like, almost like a gospel story. Like, dude, I am born again in Bentley. <laughs> like, I mean, like, this dog is unbelievable. And I go, well, what do, you, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, like, we don't go to restaurants. We literally won't go out to eat unless they allow dogs to come. That is life-changing. So then, and I said, and he goes, we only take Bentley to work. Bentley goes to work with us, all this stuff. So Bentley, had, and I looked at Molly, and I'm like, fear of missing out. I'm like, you're great and all, but you've definitely not changed my life, at least not for the good. So, but the fear of missing out, thin and stupid with the dog story, but like, but this man, this is, if there's ever been a legitimate fear of missing something, what this man is going through is incredible. Now Jesus returns, and I want you to think about 
how he must be feeling is he's gotten news. Jesus has returned. Uh, the, the feeling of elation, but probably fear. What if he doesn't choose to heal me? What if he had 10 healings in him last week, but now he has none? What if he says, I've quit healing, now I'm just going to teach? What if, what if, what if? They don't fully understand who Jesus is either. It's, a, it's still kind of a mystery, right? Who is this man? He, he might be the Messiah, but we don't know. But these four men, these friends of his, have decided they will not let him miss this time. And so they hear Jesus is here, and these four men, these four friends, and every time I've read this story in the past, I think about these four men, and I'm thankful for them because what great friends they are that they would take this man to Jesus. And I want you to think about that, what great evangelists they are in a sense. They will stop at nothing to get their friend to the face of Jesus, right? We're going to take you to Jesus no matter what it takes. So they take a man who's on his mat. He can't get out of bed. He's living on this mat, this bed. He's been living there probably his whole life. That's why he missed Jesus the last time. No one could take him. He's paralyzed. He can't move. There are no wheelchairs. There's no convalescence. There's no nurse's home. Like there's nothing. This man is probably homeless and he's incapable of getting to Jesus himself. So these men do that. When they get to the house, what's going on? It's packed. No one can get inside. Like the door, people are flowing out of the door, but they say to themselves, we're not going to stop. This man has to get in front of Jesus. And so they take him to the roof of the house. Now stop for a second and think about this. I don't know how long a walk this has been, but carrying a grown man, even with four men, had to have been difficult. This is dead weight, right? Let's call it a quarter of a mile. You're exhausted. You finally get to the home, and you're sweating, and, and you're like looking at the situation, and you're like, oh, no. But they're like, no, we're going to the roof of the house. <laughs> this is probably a very small house, think more like a hut almost, and uh, it, it probably looked not too different than the houses we build down in Mexico, I'm guessing, in terms of size and even height. And so it probably wasn't impossible to get on the roof, not, not that difficult, clearly not impossible. They did it. But houses back then and now in third world countries, you've got beams going across the roof of some sort. And then in the beams, you've got like thatched in with like mud and straw and dirt and that kind of thing, just packed in. And they got on the roof of this house and, and they begin to pound around. And I want you to think about it. Now Jesus is preaching in this room, in this house, and it's packed. It is wall to wall. There is no space in the home. People are pouring out the door. It's so crowded. And then they hear a thud on the roof, like boom, boom. Four men and a fifth are on the roof, imagine the noise, and, and then all of a sudden, the roof is it's, it's being unroofed. That's literally what it says in the Greek. It's, the roof is being unroofed by these men. They're tearing apart the, the mud and the straw, and, and all of a sudden, all these materials are coming down into the house. I've had a lot of distractions while preaching over the years. In fact, just this morning in first service, someone's phone went off, and this, she couldn't stop it, and it was this interesting noise is like going on as a living illustration after I had talked about this. Like, so like this, I've had, you know, all kinds of distractions, but this, imagine a roof coming undone above you and all of a sudden light pouring through and then a grown man being lowered down. And, and, and how does Jesus respond to this? And, and these stories, it just makes you love Jesus so much because he's not angry He's not frustrated by the interruption. Instead, we see the heart of Jesus. And it says that he saw their faith. 
And that's exactly what he saw. What else would cause grown men to do such a weird thing? Think about this. You drag a paralytic a long way. Now, think about how socially awkward a situation it is to tear open somebody's roof of their house in order to lower a man down through. I mean, this is private property. They've destroyed somebody's home. What would drive you to do this other than faith? Jesus saw their faith. They are so determined to get this man to Jesus, they will literally destroy this person's house to do it. They bring the roof down in order to bring this man into the face of Jesus and get him healed. Such faith. And as they're lowering the man down, Jesus says something that we don't expect. We expect him, of course, to heal the man, right? This is what Jesus does. But instead of saying, my son, you're healed, he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And it's in the present tense, which is meaning immediately your sins are forgiven with an ongoing consequence. Like your sins are forgiven now and they will continue to be forgiven. And Jesus is not simply implying that God forgives them. Like, hey, I'm a man of God and I love God. And I'm telling you, God forgives you. Jesus, there's this sense in which he's saying, I forgive you. That your sins are against the creator of the universe. And by the way, that's me. You've offended a holy God and we all have and the offense is against me, and your sins are forgiven. And the scribes who are there are asking, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. And here's the thing. As I read about Bible people, you know, in the Gospels, I think a lot of things, but one of the things is I am very, very judgmental of the Pharisees and the scribes and the disciples. And you think, like, why don't they get it? I don't understand why they don't get it. But if you put yourself in their shoes, if you're a scribe or a Pharisee or just a Jew in that day, there are many people that have come forward saying they're the Messiah. Jesus is not the first. Would you believe? Just because somebody says they're Messiah, well, you're saying, yeah, I mean, look at the miracles. Look at all these things he's doing. Uh, yeah, I, I believe. But Jesus is now saying he forgives sins. And they're right. The Bible teaches that only God can forgive sins. And so a man, a human being, and they had no concept of of Messiah being fully God and fully man. So a man is saying, I am God. And a lot of skeptics of the Bible or critics of the Bible say, Jesus never declared to actually be God. You're not reading the same book that I am if you don't get this. Jesus throughout right here is implying, yes, I'm God. Why was Jesus crucified? He claimed to be God. He claimed to be fully God, fully man. He was blaspheming, they said, and if he wasn't able to back it up, he would have been a blasphemer. But Jesus is saying, I am God. We're told that Jesus understood their hearts. Now, why is Jesus asking or saying, your sins are forgiven? And that's an odd thing to say when a man needs to be healed, right? A man needs to be healed, but Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Is Jesus implying that the man's paralyzed because of his personal sin, so that like God struck him with paralyzation because of his sin or his parents' sin or his grandparents' sin. And by the way, that's exactly what people of that day and that culture would have thought. If you had uh, some disease or chronic illness, it was because you sinned or your parents sinned or somebody in your family sinned. But we learned in John 9 from the man born blind that Jesus said then, like, look, this isn't a, that's not what this is about. 
The man is not born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin, but for the glory of God. The Jews that day believed this, but listen, ultimately everything that is broken here in this earth is in sickness and death is due to sin, right? The whole world is infected with, with brokenness and fallenness, and yes, it's due to the original sin and the sinful structure in which we all live, but Jesus is not impl- implying that the man was paralyzed due to his sin, but instead is saying, look, what's happening here is that, of course, we're all born in this sinful world, and I've come to break the back of what's causing this. And then Jesus asked this question, the question, in Mark 2, verses 8 through 10. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, take up your bed and walk. I mean, this is easy. This is an interesting uh, issue, an interesting question. The question that Jesus asked this passage, is it easier? Which is easier? And let me ask you, which is easier? Is it easier to say to this man, get up and walk when he's been paralyzed probably his whole life? Is that easier? Or is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Class, which is easier? Your, your sins are forgiven, right? That's easy. It, it may get you crucified, but it's easy to say. Which is easier to say? It is easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't verify that. This is a little town. Everyone knows this guy. They've seen whoever his name is their whole, his whole life, paralyzed, unable to move. If you say, get up, take up your mat and walk, either the man will walk or he won't. That's harder, literally, to say. In a way, we go on. Pick up your mat and walk. In Mark 2, verses 10 through 11, then Jesus says this, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to this man, the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. This is awesome. Jesus does that which is easier for him, the healing, to prove that he has the authority to do which is more difficult, which is forgive sins. Jesus does what is verifiable, the healing, to show that he has the authority over that which is unverifiable, to forgive sins. It is easier for Jesus. It is easier for Jesus to heal the man, and he does that in order to say, if you, look, if I can do this, you should believe me that I can do that, which is forgive sins, that I'm God. Who, you think only God can forgive sins, and you're right, but who can heal a man who's paralyzed? Get up. But God. Ultimately, it was far harder for Jesus to forgive sins. We know this. The cost was enormous. It would cost him everything. It was an infinite cost. And we talk about his crucifixion as if we understand it, the physical pain and torture. But that's not what happened to Jesus on the cross only. It was in the physical torture. It was the reality that the sins of the whole world, including yours and mine, were on him. My sin, your sin, were, were placed on him as a substitute. He received the penalty of our, of our sin. It cost Jesus everything. 
And we who are spiritual paralytics, incapable, this man is so incapable, he can't get himself to the house. He can't get himself to Jesus. They have to take him to the roof and lower him in in order to be healed. That's our spiritual condition. This is what we're like. It's impossible for us to save ourselves. That's our condition. But Jesus was cursed that we may be blessed. He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God, right? Amen. And the one who created life tasted death so that we might overcome it. So why did he tell this man that his sins are forgiven instead of just healing him? And again, this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus does not just come to deal with the symptoms. So often when we go to physicians, no offense to physicians these days, but it feels like people just want to address symptoms. You have this problem, here's a pill. You want this, you know, maybe they should tell me to quit eating so much, but instead of here's some medication, right? We deal with symptoms, but Jesus never just deals with the symptoms. He's going to the root cause. I say to you, I forgive your sins because that ultimately is your problem. Not that your sin caused your, your paralysis, but this is what we live under. The weight of our sin, which has separated us from God, that is separating us from one another. It is the problem in the entire world. And so Jesus is saying, I have come to break the back of the problem under every other problem, which is your sin. And our confidence in life should be what Jesus says to this man and what Jesus does for this man. Let me say that again. Our confidence in life that which we live out of should come from what Jesus says to this man and what Jesus does for this man. I want you to think about this for a second. What drives you in life? I asked this last week. What's driving you? And so often it's fear, uh, anger, defensiveness, hurt, pain, pride, entitlement, that's often what's driving us, but what Jesus says to this man should give us confidence, and, and it's, it's a power of blessing. He hadn't even mouthed words, Jesus, forgive me. And Jesus says to the paralyzed man, you're forgiven. He'd only heard the man's heart cry, and that was enough. This man had not done any good deed to earn it. How could he? He literally is an example of, of us spiritually, incapable of doing anything. And yet Jesus says, he doesn't even say out loud, Lord, forgive me. He's really crying out in his heart, heal me. And Jesus says, I'll go one better. I'll forgive you. And if that's true of him, can you believe it for yourself? Some of us spend our whole life waiting for a blessing from our father and from our mother. And the reality is, for many of us, that blessing may never, ever come. They just, even if they're alive, they, they just may never do it. Some of you grew up in a situation with fathers and mothers and family members that just, it was never good enough. You got good grades, it was never good enough. No matter what happened, it just was never good enough. You never got blessed, never told I love you, never received sonship, like I love you, you're my beloved son, you're my precious daughter. The words never came, the actions never came. There was neglect, there was an emotional distance. And you spend your life in search of a blessing. Bless me, bless me, bless me. It may not ever come from your mother or your father, your earthly father and mother. Some of them have even passed and 
it's long gone. It, it's, it's not capable. They're, they're deceased. They're not going to bless you. So is there any hope for you? And the answer is, of course there is. In the gospel, if you'll receive this blessing today of what he says to this man can be yours in Christ, and if it is, if you will live into this, <laughs> it can change your life. Much more powerful than my friend at the canal today. This can change your life. This can change your life. Because normally we live out of fear, we live out of arrogance, we live out of pride, we live out of anxiety, we live out of all these different motives. But what Jesus tells this man today, if you will enter into it and believe it, and believe that he has the authority to say it, it can change you. Notice as he's being lowered down, he says, your sins are forgiven, and then he calls him what? He doesn't say, your sins are forgiven, you sinful worm. He doesn't say, your sins are forgiven, you little earth creature, like I'm the creator of all things, and you know, I, I created you out of dust, you were nothing, and I created you. No, he says, your sins are forgiven, my child. My child, my son, my daughter. Romans 8.1 is a passage that I quote all the time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you live your life with a feeling that someone that you love, someone you care for, someone you respect doesn't return forgiveness to you, will not forgive you, will not release, it, it's, it's a weight. But if that person is God, it's an infinite weight. But I'm begging you to believe what God's word says this morning. Have you ever read Romans 8? If not, today read the book of Romans and, and marinate on Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ. How do you get in Christ? By repentance of your sin and faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Second, it says in Romans 8, 15 through 16, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. And by the way, women are included in this as daughters. And it's, it really means firstborn sons and saying all of us, sons, men, women, we're all firstborn sons of God, meaning we get all of God's inheritance. We've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, our friends, the, the Heislers just came back from the Middle East. We're on the street every day. They would hear children cry out, Abba, Abba, Abba. That means daddy in that culture. That's what this means. Abba, father, means daddy, father. The father of God, God's fathership over you and your sonship and daughtership is this. He is calling us to live out of this. You're a child of God. We need to know this too. Jesus said, the Son of Man has authority to what? Forgive sins. Are you trusting in your own authority or are you trusting in his? God's word says that there's power in Jesus, that he's the Son of God. He has the authority to forgive sins. And so if we don't believe that, and I don't say this to shame you and say, how dare you? I'm saying... Walk in this. Believe it. It's true. In Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. He has the authority to say it. has the authority to do it. And I plead with you to quit doubting him and to believe it. It's freedom. 
He did the hard thing so we don't have to face the impossible thing, which is to earn salvation. You can't earn it. You're like the paralytic. Only God can say such a thing. Only God can say such a thing. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus Christ is God. Trust his authority. Let's pray. Father, we profoundly need this word of truth in our life, not just heard, but lived out. I know I desperately do. To not just acquiesce in our mind only, but in our hearts, to rest in the reality that you have the authority to forgive our sins, and you have the authority to change our status, that we are now your adopted sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. And so, Lord, as the Lee family prays and prepares to adopt a child, longs to bring this child in their life, may we see you desire to bring us into your family and for us to live not as slaves, not as orphans, but as sons and daughters. Would you make that true in our life? In Jesus' good name, amen.